Past Ball Show. Brought to you by JohnPLE.com. What the f you think is my opinion of it? I think it was f- f- put that in. I don't. So the tribe drops its third straight on this trip, six to one to the Rangers. For the Indians, one run on, let's say, one hit. That's all we got. One goddamn hit. Don't worry, nobody's listening anyway. I'm talking about the past, I'm talking about the history, I'm talking about what's great about this game of baseball. There's so much stuff that we talk about. I would say I wouldn't know, but I would say the reason why they want to pass is baseball going to the highest baseball sport that has gone into baseball and from the baseball angle. I'm not going to speak of any other sport. Let me start by telling you this. I have never used steroids, period. Jerry, just remember it's not a lie. If you believe this, he sucks. Well, he is. He's out. Yes, sir. Right is out. Look, look at this. Right is out. And uh, team is mad. I'm not here to argue about other sports. I'm in the baseball business. It's been run cleaner than any baseball business that was ever put out in the 100 years of the present time. Sell the team. Oh, yeah. Welcome back. Past Ball Show and TR Radio Network ready for hour two. Uh, we're going to start this off by playing an interview I recorded last week with WFAN's Ann Liguori. And, of course, Ann Liguori has her own website, AnnLiguori.com, where she has uh, hosted a, a show, uh, a, a TV show called Sports Interview. I-N-N-E-R-V-I-E-W, and she has interviewed some of the greats to ever play, both baseball, whether it's Ted Williams or Stan Musial or football, Deacon Jones, of course, the late Deacon Jones. So definitely check out her website, but also listen, you know, a couple minutes to for my interview with Ann Ligori. After that, we'll take a break, and we'll finish up the second hour right here at a past ball show on EMTR. Radio Network. All right, this is John Pielli, Passball Show, MTR Radio Network. I'm here with uh, WFAN Tennis and Golf Correspondent, Ann Liguori. Ann, what's going on? Hey, good to be on your show, finally, right? <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> I appreciate you being part of it, and uh, I definitely look forward to speaking with you. Um, now, you know, listen, you, you've obviously been involved in, uh, in, in TV and radio for, for many, many years. What, uh, what, what influenced you to kind of get started in this whole thing? And, you know, talk a little bit about the early years, about you, uh, you know, you getting to a point where you're, you're almost at now. Wow, I know. I knew what I wanted to do when I was three years old, if you can believe that. Wow. I remember watching a, a woman in Cincinnati where I um, spent my early years uh, hosting an, an interview show. Uh, she was a talk show host. Her name uh, was Ruth Lyons, and she was a true pioneer. And all I can remember is my mom used to put me in a high chair and, and watch this show. So um, she must have had just a, a profound effect on me because... Ever since I was a little girl, I wanted to be a broadcaster, and uh, because I was athletic and loved sports, I decided to pursue sports broadcasting. So, um, you know, my whole life I, I was involved in a number of sports as, a, as an athlete, as a competitor, but my goal always was to do exactly what I'm doing now, and that's doing what you're doing, interviewing different personalities and 
hosting shows and covering sporting events all over the world. So it all worked out. <laughs> yeah, no, I'll tell you, that sounds, that sounds great. Now, when you were, when, you know, what, what is the earliest age you could think that you actually did? Like, did you ever do like, like mock interviews or like, uh, you know, make believe you're like broadcasting a game or something? Did that happen at like a really young age for you? Or did you kind of wait until after you were done, uh, you know, competing in sports? No, you know, when I was uh, in fourth grade, our elementary school had a school, you know, had a school newspaper. I grew up in a small town outside of Cleveland, Ohio. After we moved from Cincinnati to Cleveland when I was about seven or eight years old. And um, they had a school newspaper. And I always wanted to interview people for the school newspaper. I, I showed a, an interest in, in that immediately. So every week I interviewed a different personality and wrote up uh, the, the interview for the school newspaper and I've been doing it ever since, <laughs> uh, you know, for print, radio and television. I just always had this genuine interest in, in getting to know people and and uh, I just find different personalities fascinating and have, have always enjoyed that format. Yeah, and, and listen, I tell you, what, what fascinates me is obviously you were able to put everything together, you know, in your website as far as like all, all the interviews you've done, the show that you've done, and just have it, you know, all in a position where it could be archived. Now, tell, tell us a little bit about going from, let's say, you know, wh where you were as a, uh, as a person, you know, in, you know interviewing, uh, you know, athletes and people involved in, a, you know, for the school newspaper to get, getting it to the next level where you're actually interviewing, you know, pro athletes and people that are well known. Well, I mean, that, you know, it took a number of years to get to that level, but, um, you know, from high school and, and college, and, you know, I always tried to gain as much experience as I could working in, in not only radio and television, but also writing. I think writing skills are so important, but um, well, right out of college, I went to the University of South Florida in Tampa. I uh, entered a competition that uh, the International Radio and TV Society has every year for young people college students and, and college graduates. And I was one of the 25 uh, graduates chosen um, upon my college graduate graduation year to come right up to New York City. And they have an amazing program um, every summer for young, you know, for students and graduates to basically rub, rub elbows with the top personalities in broadcasting, the businessmen and women who, who really control the industry. And they put you up for eight weeks. And you, I spent the summer here in New York City. And um, basically after that program ended, I never left. My first job was at CBS Sports um, when Brent Musburger and Phyllis George were hosting the NFL Today Show. I learned so much there. And um, from there, I, I basically started freelancing and, and working for a variety of different networks, first in production, then as a statistician covering uh, major tennis tournaments. I covered Wimbledon for HBO Sports and, and the U.S. Open tennis championships for HBO during those days when they had the rights to both of those competitions. And, and I just started freelancing and get, you know, pretty much acquiring as much experience as I could as a statistician for the TV networks, as a production assistant. And I made my on-air uh, break covering um, the 1984 Olympics for ABC Radio Sports Network. I was hired as a producer, uh, and uh, they needed somebody to cover tennis, which was a demonstration sport back then. I played a lot of tennis in college and growing up, had you know obviously done all these major tournaments for um, 
as a statistician. And uh, they thought I was the only one that really knew tennis. So they sent me out to do on-air reports from the tennis venue. And uh, that was the beginning of my on-air career. I just loved it and continued working as a, a reporter for ABC Radio Network. And then WFAN came around. And I became the first woman to host a sports call-in show on WFAN. That was over 25 years ago. Yeah, that's so amazing. It's been a fun career, and um, yeah, I, I, I'm going strong. <laughs> no, absolutely. Once again, this is John Piel. I'm here with Ann LaCorey from WFAN. Now, uh, I think one thing that really interests me about what you do, because I could kind of relate to it. I mean, there's you know, there's getting the jobs you know in the business that you know that you've obviously had success doing, and then there's the free, freelance work that you do, you know, within within yourself to kind of promote yourself. Uh, what, what's the what's the best way to keep the separation between that, between you know the career that you're getting paid for and also doing the stuff to promote yourself? Well, I've always been independent, and um, even all those years working for WFAN with my own call-in sports show, and, and I continue to you know, work with them at, as a golf correspondent and, and the tennis correspondent, I've always been independent. I always did other things, so, and that was just my choice. Um, while I was hosting that call-in sports show all those years, for over 20 years on WFAN, I was also hosting and producing my own sports interview cable series and those shows are the ones you refer to that people can actually buy those interviews on my website at annlogory.com everybody from Mickey Mantle to Ted Williams to Will Chamberlain to Hank Aaron to you know I've interviewed you know hundreds of different athletes um, but you know while I was doing the show on FAN I was also um, producing and hosting that show and then the Golf Channel started and they asked me to do a celebrity interview show for that channel. So I had a lot of things going on simultaneously. And I think for me, that's the key to just have a lot of uh, projects happening. And I enjoy doing all, you know, a variety of things at the same time. It's, it's kind of tough if you're linear, but I've always been, uh, you know, a, a multitasker. Absolutely. So um, it's kind of... Uh, challenging sometimes to juggle so many projects but I, I thrive on it no, absolutely. Once again, this is John Piel. I'm here with Ann Lagori, and of course, you know, on your website, you know, you, you know, you obviously have the, uh, the the videos available for the sports interview interview show that that you've done. You know, recording uh, several interviews with a lot of great great players. Of course, within the last week, you find out about the passing of Deacon Jones. Of course, so the fearsome foursome, one of the one of the best um, one, one of the best um, defensive linemen really in the history of the NFL. And of course, you had the opportunity to interview him tell us a little bit about you know your impressions of you know talking with him and how, how that that thing all turned out you know deacon jones you know, has just such a intimidating presence obviously a big guy uh, you know the pass rusher defensive end um who basically became the master of the sack you know he just but you know when i sat down with him he was so gentle and just so friendly and was just such an interesting interview. I just uh, really remember, and I, and I interviewed him years ago. This had to been in the late 90s. But um, he was very, just, just very compelling, just a really, really interesting guy and so, you know, soft and friendly, so different than what anybody would ever have imagined, um, you know, based on his 
sheer size. You know, he was six foot five, 270 pounds, and had so much strength and agility, you know, but um, he could not have been, you know, just nicer and, and just such a really genuine person. Similar, you know, to Will Chamberlain. Here's a seven-foot guy that I interviewed years ago when he came out with his autobiography, and um, I was intrigued by Wilt Chamberlain. He was a very compelling personality and, and not only an incredible basketball player, but a, a very accomplished volleyball player. And he had sisters that were also very athletic and very talented in that department. And he was a, a huge proponent for you know, women's sports and, and women's equality in sports. And uh, so I think the thrill for me when I was, you know, interviewing all these legends and continue to interview legends is that, you know, I love talking to people that are so different than, than their, you know, than their public personas. Um, even in the entertainment world, somebody like Alice Cooper, the king of shock rock, this guy is a born-again Christian. His father he was a minister. He's the nicest guy on the planet and one of the most amazing golfers in the celebrity world. Uh, he told me the day he got out of rehab, he played 36 holes of golf and hasn't stopped playing <laughs> golf. You know, he kind of transferred his addiction. So I think the thrill is just really getting the, the true inner view of the true stories about these personalities that are so different than the public perception. Now, listen, I think that's a great point. And I'll tell you, before before I get into a couple other specific interviews that you, you've done, of course, this is John Piali. I'm here with Ann Liguori. Um, was there any particular person, like you had mentioned a little bit before, that you spoke to that you found something totally, completely, and oppositely different from what you, you would have expected to hear from them? Like you're doing an interview and, you know, similar to what you said about, you know, Alex Cooper. Um, was, there, was, there, was, there, was there other instances where your mind was like totally blown by what you were hearing <laughs> from somebody that you were interviewing? Uh, well, you know, I think everybody was pretty surprising in their own right because they are so different than, you know, what we read about them and what we imagine them to be. But one of my favorite interviews was with Ted Williams. Um, I got him in his later years, obviously, when it, well, he was at the All-Star Game when it came to Boston. Yes. And uh, he was making his return to, you know, this city that, uh, you know, just he had this love-hate relationship with Boston Red Sox fans. And he had come back all these years later just so very humbled and, and so very appreciative of of his years as a as an incredible ball player and, and um, he, he was just really humbled and you know I had read about all these times where he'd had you know so many issues with the fans and and uh, he had said some things that you know weren't too nice about Boston and he came back just so loving and, and so adoring of, of you know Boston and, and the whole town and and you can remember that all-star game when he came out in a golf cart and they drove him around the stadium and he got an incredible, you know, ovation from the, from the fans. And he was just a very wise man. You know, at that point, he, he, he's, he's a genius. You know, he was a genius on baseball and loved teaching the game. And he was so thrilled that I had, you know, really studied him and his his career and asked him questions about not only his baseball career, but about him being, you know, a, a pilot 
uh, in the Korean War, you know, with the U.S. Marine Corps. He was a fighter bomber pilot, and he was an avid fisherman and, and was inducted into the Fisherman Hall of Fame and just all kinds of things. And I think with him, um, what touched me the most was his son, John Henry, was with him when I interviewed him. In fact, John Henry was very instrumental in my getting that interview with Ted because Ted was ailing even back then in 1999 when I interviewed with, interviewed him. And, and John Henry said, Ann, if you come at 11 o'clock, uh, you know, tomorrow morning, you will, I guarantee you, he will have just gotten up from his nap and he will be rested and very alert and he'll give you, you know, 45 great minutes. Wow. And which is exactly what he did. And my camera crew set up at the Four Seasons and we got a beautiful room and Ted came down and I got 45 minutes of just treasured interview footage with you know, one of the most legendary baseball players of all time. So um, I think that pleasantly surprised me because I just didn't know much about him. He had played way before my time and I'd heard so many stories about him and he was just beautiful to talk to. Now, I'll tell you, the baseball historian in me, you know, is obviously, I've, I've studied everything there possibly could be about uh, Major League Baseball. And really, when it comes down to it, Ted Williams, really, his, his mark in the game is probably within the top three position players in the whole history of the game. And, uh, you know, a lot of people, you know, a lot of people, I think, quickly overlook what he did to serve his country, not only in the Korean War, but in World War II. I mean, he lost a, a good maybe five and a half, six seasons of the prime of his career, you know, serving his country. Which exactly. And then he came back and, and, and resumed like nothing ever happened. Like exactly. he never left. And that was just remarkable. No, absolutely. And, uh, you know, obviously you've had a chance to interview a lot, a lot of other greats, a lot of other legends, um, you know, including Mickey Mantle. Um, tell, us, tell us a little bit about your, your, uh, your interview with Mickey Mantle and, you know, what you were able to touch on, you know, and kind of around the timing when you got to speak with Mickey. Yeah, well, Mickey actually was the very first interview I ever did for my long-running sports interview with Anne Ligori show, and that was 1989. <laughs> That's going back, and, you know, Mickey Mantle's restaurant used to be, you know, a very popular place. I'm sad to say that it's no longer around. Uh, it finally closed, what, about a year or two ago? Yes. But um, I used to go there a lot. You know, I lived in the city for many, many years, and there were all kinds of sports functions at Mickey Mantle's Restaurant, and I became friendly with Bill Lederman, one of the owners of Mickey Mantle's Restaurant on Central Park uh, South. And um, I'd use, I would see Mickey there. Mickey would always hang out there. And, um, you know, I got to talk to him, you know, there and at other sports functions. And, and when I put my TV show together, Sports Interview, um, I asked Mickey if he would be my very first guest and he said he'd love to so I'll never forget going there and sitting in what he called the Roger Maris booth and the reason it was called the Roger Maris booth is because he had a ball that was encased in the wall right in the, at that booth and uh, it was signed by Roger Maris and it said to Mick my best bud love Roger and why that was so special and, and Mickey started crying about this story when he told me. You know, Mickey was uh, very sentimental and, and uh, just a great storyteller. And, you know, everybody thought back then that he and Roger Maris hated each other because they were going after the same baseball records and, you know, very competitive with each other. But, you know, they were teammates and adored each other. And 
when we started talking about that, he took the ball out of the case to show me. And sure enough, uh, you know, he talked about how he adored Roger Maris and how, you know, friendly they were with each other, uh, much to, um, uh, you know, was certainly not the perception back then. Everybody thought that they were huge rivals and didn't like each other. So uh, Mick was a great storyteller. He was very sentimental. He cried when he talked about losing his father to Hodgkin's disease. And, you know, at the time, his son had it. And uh, a couple years later, after that interview, his, his son passed away. So um, he had, you know, endured a lot of heartache, um, you know, losing family members. And, um, and you've heard the story. He thought that, you know, he told everybody that he thought he was going to die of Hodgkin's disease. And, and so he partied hardy. And, well, it finally caught up to him because he, he got liver cancer. But, uh, but he was just um, a real fun person, um, would always find autographs for, you know, my family that would come in. If, if we saw him at the restaurant and he was in the middle of a big meeting, he would stop everything and, and come over and, and chat with, with me and, and my friends and family. And um, he could not have been nicer. No, no question about it. And I, I tell you, I mean, he, he, he was always known as one of, the, one of the nicer guys, you know, for being such a legend and so well-loved. You never really saw, like, too many moments with him that you see with, like, a lot of modern-day players where they just seem, you know, not unapproachable. Right. It even well, seems he was from a small town, Commerce, Oklahoma. Just, uh, you know, his father was, you know, worked in the mines. And he was from very humble, humble beginnings. And um, I got to know... You know his wife and his and his sons, and I got to know the whole family and have and interviewed them as well. And it was just uh, it's just so cool to to get to know him and so many other great legends in the game. In fact, uh, I'm putting a book together um, of, of, about all these you know legendary personalities that I've inter- interviewed through the years and what it was like talking to all of them. So. I'll have to keep you posted when I, when that's finally done. No, absolutely. And listen, Anne, before I let you go, just uh, you know, one more quick plug for your uh, for your website, and just let the listeners know, you know, how they could get a get a hold of your material if they want to, you know, want to purchase a video and stuff like that. Sure. Well, they can go to AnneLaGori.com, and it's A N N L I G U O R I dot com. And not only are my TV interviews on uh, that website that you can order in DVD format. You can also order my book, A Passion for Golf, Celebrity Musings About the Game, and that's a collection of all these interviews I've done with personalities in sports, music, Hollywood, and business who have a passion for golf, but who really talk to me while I'm golfing with them about their success stories. So it's really more about who these people are than it is about you know their golf game. And then I also do a show on an NPR affiliate in the Hamptons, theconicpublicbroadcasting.org, you can hear the show every Saturday from 9 to 10 on PeconicPublicBroadcasting.org. And um, if you miss the shows live, they are normally archived on my website as well. So there's a lot of uh, interesting information, I hope to think, on my website at AntLaGoria.com. And I appreciate you plugging it for me. Uh, yeah, no question about it. I, mean, I, I definitely appreciate it. The pleasure is all mine with it. But one question I want to ask you, because I just, I just forgot, all the different sports that you've covered and you, you've, you've focused on, what is your absolute passion when it comes to what sport absolutely gets you 100%? to say golf. I love to play golf. It's such a mental sport. You could be the greatest athlete in the world 
and be completely humbled by golf. I mean, you look at Michael Jordan, you look at Wayne Gretzky, you look at, you know, look at Charles Barkley. You look yeah. at all these athletes who did so well in their chosen sports. Muriel Lemieux and and uh, just you know, so many of these athletes play golf, and they're so challenged and humbled by it. So I enjoy it because it is just such an incredible sport. It has an amazing tradition and history. I probably feel the same way about golf as you feel about baseball, John. I mean, there's just such an incredible tradition and history with the sport. And, and then as a player, there's so much to learn. You're always learning about golf, and you can never perfect it. And then to cover these professional tournaments, particularly the majors, my favorite you know, sporting event in the world is the Masters, and I've covered every major sporting event in all these Olympics, which I also adore covering. But I love the Masters. I love, you know, the, the history and the tradition and the beauty of the course and the excitement. There's always drama coming down, you know, to the final round, and there's always compelling stories with, with the golfers, and it's so difficult to be a professional golfer and to win because there's so much depth out there, and, and it's such a tough sport to really get good at and to be consistently good at. So I get really, really passionate about covering golf. No, that's, I, I think that's outstanding. I mean, we all need to have one sport, and I and I, I really agree. Like, people could be fans, or people could like really follow a lot of sports, but I think we all have that one sport that we're just like diehard passionate about that we probably couldn't do without. Exactly, and I cover. I leaped uh, Monday for Marion Golf Club to cover the U.S. Men's Open. I cover the U.S. You know, the U.S. Open every year for WFAN and for CBS Sports Radio Network. My updates can be heard at the top of the hour, starting at 10 o'clock every hour from you know throughout the whole tournament, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday of next week. Um, and then 20 minutes after the hour, I, you can hear me all over the country on CBS Sports Radio Network affiliates. And then, you know, I do the PJ Championship, the Ryder Cup. The Women's Open is coming right out to the east end of Long Island the last week of June at Sabonic Golf Club in Southampton. So a lot of golf. This is the season, so um, I'm ready. I'm excited. No, absolutely. And we'll definitely have to check that out. Listen, Ann, I want to thank you for all your time today. You know, great catching up with you. And, yeah, hopefully I can get you on the program sometime in the near future. Anytime, John. Thanks so much. I so appreciate it. Thanks. Oh, yeah. I hope you guys enjoyed that spot with Ann Liguori. And, of course, Ann right now is doing a great job covering uh, the U.S. Open. So we'll see how that ends up working out, the whole thing. Uh, we'll be back with a little bit more going on. Pass ball show. And- MTR Radio is already your home for the best sports talk in New York and Philly. Coming soon, the next leap in the evolution of Internet radio will have you tuning in all day, every day. Close out your workday with Sean Bretherick and Dan Feuerstein from 3 to 5 p.m. Then when your teams are done for the day, David Dobin will be there to recap all the action from 10 to midnight. It all starts Monday, May 6th on MTR Radio, America's radio station. You're listening to MTR Radio. What's up, everybody? This is James Flippin. And Joey Baboots. We host the morning show together, and every morning we start up our cars and make the drive up to the studio. And you know, we always see one or two accidents along the way, and we wanted to make sure our listeners know where to go for the best in car care in South Jersey. That's right, James. Red Rose Body Shop. That's Red Rose Body Shop. Specializes in collision and framework. They're the best in South Jersey for paint and bodywork, unibody framework, free towing, and free estimates. So call today, 609 609- 
727-927-9454 and check out their website, www.redroseautobody.com. Follow them on Facebook and Twitter. Red Rose Body Shop, 2033 Ocean Heights Avenue, Egg Harbor Township, New Jersey, 609-927-9454. Red Rose Body Shop is South Jersey's collision specialist. 609-927-9454 or redrosebodyshop.com. Been in an accident? Take your car to the professionals at Red Rose Body Shop. TR Radio Network, back after the... Hey, welcome back. Passball Show right here on the MTR Radio Network. This is John Pielli, and we're going to take us right into a discussion we're going to have with uh, former Major League pitcher Pete Smith. Pete, what's going on, buddy? Hey, John. How are you doing today? Yeah, pretty good, man. Pretty good. Now, you know, we'll start out. We'll talk a little bit about the movie 42, which you're obviously a part of. Tell us, first of all, a little bit about your role in it and uh, what it meant to be a part of it. Well, uh, you know, it's ironic. My wife has a jewelry line, and uh, one of her customers has a as a casting company and they were shooting the movie uh it was a warner brothers legendary films uh production out of la but they were filming it in chattanooga and birmingham and a little bit in atlanta so they were looking to have a former player that could kind of keep it realistic as far as the ball players are concerned and where they played and where the umpires were and uh you know simple baseball aspects so they asked me if I would be interested in talking to the second unit director, who was Alan Graff, and he did a lot of movies. Uh, he's more of a football guy. He did, like, Any Given Sunday, uh, The Waterboy. So he has an extensive career, but mainly in, in football movies. So I kind of teamed up with him. I was kind of under him. And we helped him, too. We did, we did an open call in Atlanta, so we got, got some ball players. We were looking for at least college education and college experience. Um, and then we put together some teams for the movie because uh, Jackie ends up playing, you know, his rookie year in 1947 against, uh, you know, Phillies, Cardinals, uh, Pirates, different teams like that. So we had to separate them and then put them into uh, certain scenes. You know, we had a tryout for all these other ballplayers that came in, and then we had to narrow those down and pick teams and end up, we ended up going over to East Cobb uh, Baseball here in Atlanta and did a like a month um, just practicing the scenes really getting getting them ready for the scenes they needed to be in and then we had about a two and a half month shoot um, they turned the old um, Chattanooga Lookout Stadium and basically into Evans Field using a bunch of special effects came out really good yeah absolutely i mean just looking at the movie i mean it looks like the you know ebbets field looks so real there and it's it's it almost does. it's yeah. almost like it's you know you almost get like this impression that the stadium's still around somehow it's amazing how they did it because honestly we, we walked in there john and, and they built this huge green wall behind the outfield wall and then all they did is they added their special effects afterwards put brooklyn in the background 
Uh, and then they had, they had to basically add two more tiers because uh, Ebbets Field was a three-tier stadium. So just to see the final product was it's pretty amazing what they can do. Yeah, I'll tell you. And one question I, I wanted to ask because I actually heard other people talking about it. The, the stadium w- was actually, with the special effects, if you actually look at it, it probably looks nothing like even even a stadium from some perspectives, right? It does. I mean, it, it, it's an old stadium. It's one of the oldest stadiums in America. Uh, filmed there, filmed in a stadium in Birmingham called Rickwood Stadium, which I believe is the oldest uh, active stadium. They okay. still play minor league ball there. So we turned both of those stadiums. I think the stadium... Um, in Rickwood, I believe, was the was the home for the uh, Pirates when we did the Pirates scene. So, yeah, they just did an amazing job. They, they added, uh, you know, they were painting railings and they were uh, putting in extras and everybody was period dressed. Um, it was really a neat experience to see how all of that came about because I had no idea how they used to make movies or how they made movies. To go through it was a pretty neat experience. No, absolutely. Once again, it's John Pielli. I'm here with former Major League pitcher Pete Smith. Now, you know, what what scenes of the movie, if any, were you actually in? Because now, now I'm, like, curious. Now I want to go back and try to find spots where, you know, you, you were in, if you were. Yeah, they'll, they'll be blitz. You know, my kids were actually watching it. Like, I didn't I didn't see it, Daddy. But, uh, you know, it's it's every it's once in a while, a split second. I, I'm a, I, I do a few different things. It's actually a funny, funny scene, but there's an exhibition game between the Dodgers and the Montreal Royals. Branch Rickey was giving Jackie an opportunity to prove himself for the AAA team, which is the Montreal Royals. So I'm actually a coach in the Montreal Royals first base box, and then I actually double for the pitcher. So the same scene that Jackie's on base, I'm coaching and I'm pitching, which is <laughs> kind of odd. But that's that's the magic of movies, I guess. No, absolutely, man, and I'm sure I'm sure it must have been uh, you know great to be part of something like that because you know when it comes down to it, I mean, baseball kind of has a history of, of of yeah some good movies, but for the most part, most of the baseball you know related movies, whether it refers to something in real life, end up not doing so well. What do you what do you think was the key to to making this movie as successful as it was? You know, honestly, John, the key to the movie was the story, uh, the Jackie Robinson story, what him, what he went through, what his uh, him and his wife went through, and I really found a bond. I read the script, and I like, immediately felt this bond between him and his wife. Uh, they really did it together. Uh, she was there every step of the way, and what he went through, he really had to lean on her a lot, and she kept him motivated and going, and um, uh, the story is what really is the most important and most fascinating aspect about the entire movie and my job was basically to just make it look as realistic as I could uh, so Chad Bozeman played Jackie he did a phenomenal job he probably worked three months out in LA and then about a month with us in Atlanta um, and then we had some great doubles for him as well and and then our team that we that we chose uh, the actors did a great job uh, that played the Dodgers they really were pretty decent athletes, and then they really came out on film, and then we had some really good ball players here in Atlanta that, that stepped up and, and uh, really gave it the realistic uh, aspect. Yeah, very true. And I'll tell you, what really interests me about it, too, is, uh, you know, I'm a, I'm a baseball historian. I study, you know, I, I know probably as much about what went on and the, the whole chain of events with the 1947 season and the Dodgers and the whole thing. And just watching it from that perspective, maybe I would be like a little more critical of certain things. I tell you, the, um, the historical accuracy of the things that went on during that season was really right on. You know, they really tried to, as far as the scoreboard, uh, the, the Schaefer scoreboard that was at Everett's Field, each game that we were filming, we had, those were the actual 
box scores from the days uh, from the day that, that they played. They, I mean, Brian Hedgeman, who directed it, really wanted to get everything as accurate as he could. I'm sure we missed a couple things, but he, he had it down to, to the box scores per day. So we were changing that scoreboard to shoot a different scene to be as accurate as we could. Yeah, yeah, it was was pretty much right on. I would say the only thing that that like I knew once I saw it that it wasn't one hundred percent right. The movie actually gives the impression that Leo DeRocher gets suspended for almost adultery as opposed to his association with gambling. That doesn't really get brought up, but obviously if you know what went on, it was his association with gamblers that got him suspended for the whole 1947 season. But but you're watching it, you see him in bed with the woman and, you know, know, Branch Rickey's like, hey, I I asked him if it was worth it. He said it was worth it. So, you know, that's, you know, as as a person watching it, you kind of get that perception. But but honestly, other than that, dude, it was right on. Yeah, and the only other thing I heard too was the Austin Mueller uh, when he hits Jackie in the head, and I, I believe that his granddaughter came out and said, you know, he never did that; that never happened, and she was kind of protecting her dad. And I'm sure, as I, you know, you you kind of choose your battles, and hopefully you end up uh, with the best result that you can get. But there there were some instances where I was trying to change a couple things, and it's like, well, you know, let's just keep it; it reads better. It's, it's it's based on a true story, so we're, we're trying to make it as, as accurate as we can, but everything's not going to be 100% accurate. And being you know, a low man on the totem pole, I just kind of step back and, and, and let them do what they could. No, no, absolutely no problem, man. Once again, this is John Piel. I'm here for Major League Pitcher Pete Smith. Now, you know, into your playing career a little bit. You know, you got a chance. You started out. You were, you know, you were you were drafted by the Philadelphia Phillies, and you were traded to the Atlanta Braves. You had a chance to be part of the Atlanta Braves pitching staff as they developed guys like uh, John Smoltz and Tom Glavin. Tell us a little bit about being part of the Braves and their kind of rise from being a last place team to eventually a, a team that, uh, you know, is a perennial first place team. Well, you know, it was honestly uh, a lot of um, just to be blessed to be in the right time, honestly. Um, you know, Tommy and I, uh, we actually grew up together up in Massachusetts. We played high school ball against each other. Um, we got drafted the same year. Um, and then he was he went to the Braves, I went to the Coast, and then I got traded. So he was really the first person I called. Um, and we were just kind of going through the minor league system. Tommy, he had gone up a little quicker than I did. He was in AAA. I was still down in AA. And the Braves were so bad, they just called us up and said, we're going to give you the ball and we're going to teach, you know, go out and learn how to be a major league pitcher. We're losing anyways. We might as well get you guys some experience. Um, and we did that, and then we brought Smoltz up the next year. And we weren't very good. That was 87. We, we got called up. And 88 was the same way. 89, where we brought up Avery. Uh, maybe 90, I think we brought up Steve. And he struggled. Yeah, we all struggled. We all took our lumps, but we were, were, were gaining experience. And then just in 91, we made a few acquisitions, brought in Terry Pendleton, brought in Sid Green. Um, we had Ronnie Gant, Blauser, Lemkeepies, all these guys. We all came up through our minor league system, David Justice. And we just clicked. You know, 91 just clicked. It was one of these things where we may not have been the best team, but we had really been playing together for probably four, five, six years. Uh, so we knew each other. We all got along well. That's one thing that the Braves do. They they really do draft, you know, not to toot my own horn, but they do draft good people. They want good people in their, in their organization. And if you're not that type of person, you find yourself gone really quickly. Yeah. So uh, it was just a, a bonding uh, chemistry. You know, a lot of teams right now, you look at, you know, even the Yankees say, and not to pick on the Yankees, but being from Boston, I have to. <laughs> but you look at them and, you know, they go out and they buy a great team, but I don't know if the chemistry's there. 
You know, some of these other teams that maybe don't have the, the, the star power, they just play well as a team, and that's really what we did in 91, and then it just carried on for 14 seasons after that. Uh, and I think the Braves have just gotten used to winning, and I'm glad because uh, now I can enjoy it with my kids, and I still go down and do a lot of alumni stuff with the Braves. As you know, we do fantasy camp, so uh, it's just nice to be a part of that winning organization. Yeah, very true. And I tell you, one thing that interests me, because we, we get into this discussion all the time with different people, uh, you, you have young pitchers. Like, you know, at the time when you came up in 87, you were 21 years old, and you're talking about pitchers that are 21, 22, 23 years old. And critics say that they may have a better chance of developing, spending another full season in AAA and just kind of getting your confidence up. And then there's that other perspective of saying, listen, these guys are part of our future. We might as well see them up now and see what they can do. the opportunity, you know, where I was, the Braves honestly didn't have – they had a horrible team. I think we lost 100 games. Um, It was almost like a AAA ball club. Truthfully, so to be able to pitch against you know Daryl Strawberry and some of the you know Gary Carter and some of these guys, that's what we I, I believe Tommy especially just you know we took our lumps. You know Tommy lost 17 games, I lost 15 games. I think we had ERAs in the threes. Um, any other ball club, we probably would have won 15 and 17 games. But we we learned a lot from that experience. Tommy especially, and he went out and developed a changeup, and then he became you know Hall of Fame pitcher. So in our in our instance, I think it worked, but. Um, you know, with the, with a really good ball club, I, I think it is better to keep those guys in AAA. Let them take their lumps there. Um, and then when they start to gain a little bit more confidence, you know, looking at someone like a Tehran with the Braves who came, who came up, people were questioning him. He's all of a sudden just turned the, turned the page. Yes. Uh, he had a bad game last night, but he's, you know, he's learning how to be a, a, a really good big league pitcher. Yeah, no question about it. Once again, John Pielli here, former Major League pitcher, Pete Smith. Now, you know, as you as you get to see, obviously, you talk about that team being bad, you know, losing, you know, nearly 100 games a couple seasons. You know, you see that team kind of turn around right in front of your eyes. And, you know, 91, they make the playoffs for the first time. 92, you get the opportunity to actually be part of the postseason team and pitch in the postseason. Tell us a little bit about your experience in the postseason in 1992, playing, of course, against the, the Pirates in the NLCS and, of course, in the World Series against Toronto. Yeah, in 91, I was kind of hurt. I was coming off surgery from 90. Um, so, 91, I, was, I wasn't really myself. And then uh, I ended up starting the season in AAA in 92. I just wasn't ready. Mike Bilecki was there. Uh, and then Mike got hurt. So I came up and actually pitched really well in two, uh, and was able to go on to the, the postseason roster. I pitched in game six of the World Series, uh, pitched a couple innings in the uh, NLCS as well. And, and, and honestly, uh, other than your your kids born in your and uh, your debut, pitching in the World Series or pitching the playoffs, I think just because you know every other team is watching, and you're, you you were the only four teams left, and then you're the only two teams left. Um, and the excitement that the city had, everybody was, you know, you know exactly where you were when shit slid. Um, you know, it was just a, I think an awesome experience to be a part of. And uh, I'm just very fortunate. There are a lot of guys that, you know, play for a lot of years and never get into the postseason. But there's nothing like postseason baseball. Yeah, no question about it. And, of course, you stick around for the 1993 season. Looks like you have a little bit of injuries then as well, if I'm not mistaken, right? Yeah, you know, it's, it's, I, I ended up having four surgeries. I really wish I could have stayed healthy, but it was just this nagging rotator cuff. I just could not stay healthy. Tried to pitch through it uh, in 93. I continued to try to pitch through it in 94. 95, I just think I kind of hit, <laughs> hit it, and I had to get up on the DL and get some 
uh, tendonitis uh, inflammation medication in me and um, ended up yeah going back down to AAA and just trying to work my, my way back and then ended up doing that with the Padres which I'm actually very proud of because a lot of guys I think would have just not that they would have given up but to go from you know being a number one pick and you have the kind of the road it's all paid for you ready to go and then you get hurt um, and then you come back and pitch really well and then you get hurt again it's really hard to keep coming back and you, you're throwing 94 and then you're throwing 92 and then you're throwing you know 86 I think I was a better pitcher throwing at 86 because you have to make pitches then as opposed to just throwing fastball slider at 94 by somebody and then throw a nasty slider and you know you don't have to worry about it pitching at 86 you really have to make sure you locate your spots yeah. Uh, you'll, or you'll get you'll get demolished, especially up there. Yeah, and I'll tell you, having a chance to pitch, you know, with a guy and know a guy pretty well, like Tom Glavin, I'm sure, you know, made that transition easier for you. I'm sure you, you know, you consulted him as you're kind of, uh, you know, making those uh, making those changes throughout your career. Yeah, definitely, and that's the great, you know, again, that's the chemistry. There was no, there was no jealousy or there was no um, animosity towards, you know. Any pitcher, if someone's struggling, you you know, you have their back. You tap you pat them on the back and say, you know, let's get them next time. Or maybe I saw this, or I know there was a game I pitched in Atlanta. He Tommy's like, you need to use your fastball more. So I'm throwing 86. They're gonna kill it. He goes, doesn't matter. I'm throwing 86, but you have to show them the fastball. You can't just keep throwing off speed. And, you know, just little little hints, little tips. It's supposed to struggle. Or we saw something he was doing, or a glitch in his mechanics. Um, you know, Leo was a, was a good pitching coach great pitching coach. I think he's mechanically one of the best pitching coaches I've had, but uh, he also had, you know, 12 other guys that were watching out for other other players, and because we played with each other for so long, you know, I knew if, if Tommy was doing something, I could I could tell him right off the bat that he wasn't getting his arm up, or, um, or he was drifting towards the plate, and they did the same thing for me. Yeah, very true. Once again, it's John Pielli. I'm here with former Major League pitcher Pete Smith. You end up being traded to the Mets in 1994. You get a chance to pitch for that team. Um, you know, the season obviously ends up getting shortened because of the strike, the whole thing. Tell us a little bit about your experience with the Mets in 1994. You know, I didn't think that being from Boston again uh, that I would enjoy. Because I remember going to New York as a, as a Brave. And the fans are, uh, they can be relentless. They're great fans. They're phenomenal fans, and I learned that. It was a great lesson learned. I know Boston fans are, are diehard, and so are New York fans. And when you go there, it's difficult to play in at Shea or in Yankee Stadium. But when you're a Met, there's no better no better fans. It was honestly a, a pleasure to play in New York. Uh, we had a really good team. Um, I think we came in third that year. But we had the same. We had just good chemistry. Uh, we may not have had the most talented team, but we had some really good chemistry. We had some really good players with Brett Saberhagen and Franco, and uh, Bobby Benilla was on that club, Jeff Kent. So we had some talent. Um, but it was honestly a pleasure to play in New York. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, and of course you end up uh, spending, you know, you, you end up having that, that big operation. I think it was, what, the 95 season or, you know, somewhere between then and 1996. And then, of course, yeah. you make that you make the big comeback with the Padres. And like you like you said, it meant a lot to you be able, to be able to uh, come back there and show you could still do it, you know, even after you finally have the major operation. It did. It was almost, you know, like a full circle where we, uh, we ended up beating the Braves in 98 um, to go to the World Series against the Yankees when the Yankees uh, – flat out swept us but same thing I had been traded uh, during that season I was pitching well but there was there was an issue between you know somebody one of the veterans didn't want to go to the bullpen and 
and they were they're a small market team and I guess they were paying me too much to be in the bullpen so they traded me over to Baltimore um, so it was great to follow them halfway through the season I was I got traded about all-star break uh, but to watch them go to the World Series was was cool and, and again great guys great chemistry just like the 91 team the 98 Padres had really great chemistry with Trevor Hoffman and Ken Caminiti, unfortunately, uh, we've lost him, but uh, Steve Stanley and some of these other ball players that were, you know, obviously Tony Gwynn, uh, that were just great, great guys. And that's honestly what I can, you know, I tell my kids, how come the Yankees aren't winning? Or how come, you know, Red Sox are struggling and they have all these great players? And I'm like, you don't know what goes on in that clubhouse. There could be some issues with their clubhouse. It could be one guy or it could be a couple guys. And you saw with the Red Sox and Bobby Valentine was managing and it just wasn't right. The chemistry wasn't right. They get rid of Euclid. Majority doesn't want to play for him, and it just turns into a mess. And a lot of times, the public doesn't see that. But I was fortunate enough to play on some really good teams with some really good chemistry. Yeah, absolutely, you did. And I'll tell you what I always find interesting about this discussion to talk about like talent against uh, chemistry in a clubhouse. To me, and this is my opinion, you could tell me if I'm wrong. A team that doesn't have the talent can have the greatest chemistry in a clubhouse possible. To me, I don't see how that team could end up winning. Do you agree or disagree? Um, I think you have to have some talent. I really do. Um, you know, you look at some of these other teams like the A's, you know, they, the whole money ball and theme where you, you know, get these guys can get on base, high, high on base percentage. Um, you, you have to be able to play to a certain degree. Uh, we had some good ball players. You know, we had the MVP of the league in, in 91 with Terry Pendleton. He just, you know, he turned it on and had a great year. Uh, Tommy went out and won 20 games. Um, Smoltz, had a turnaround season where he lost I think he was 11 1 and 11 before the all-star break and then second half he went 11 and 1 so we did have some good ball players and I agree with you I think you know you have to have some talent chemistry is really it just benefits it can take you to that next level you have to have talent but that chemistry really make a a team um, you know instead of a third place team could make it a first place team no, I agree. Right. If you don't have talent, you're not going to win. Yeah, I agree with you 100%. And listen, Pete, I want to thank you for having some time today. Definitely appreciate all the insight about 42 and your playing career, the whole thing. Um, hopefully we can stay in touch and I can get you on a program sometime in the near future. Sounds good, John. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Yep, take care. And, of course, that was Pete Smith. Pete pitched his career mostly with the Atlanta Braves in the late 80s, the early 90s. And, uh, you know, of course, a little bit of an appearance with the New York Mets. So I want to thank him for being part of the program. We're going to take our last break of the day, maybe about a minute or so, finish up with a couple little tidbits, and we're going to finish up today's version. What's up, everybody? This is James Flippin. And Joey Baboots. We host a morning show together, and every morning we start up our cars and make the drive up to the studio. And, you know, we always see one or two accidents along the way, and we wanted to make sure our listeners know where to go for the best in car care in South Jersey. That's right, James. Red Rose Body Shop. That's Red Rose Body Shop specializes in collision and framework. They're the best in South Jersey for paint and bodywork, unibody framework, free towing, and free estimates. So call today, 609 609- 927-9454 and check out their website www.redroseautobody.com follow them on Facebook and Twitter Red Rose Body Shop 2033 Ocean Heights Avenue Egg Harbor Township New Jersey 609-927-9454 Red Rose Body Shop is South Jersey's collision specialist 609-927-9454 or redrosebodyshop.com Been in an accident? Take your car to the professionals at Red Rose Body Shop. Version of the past ball show. Thank you.
for listening oh yeah welcome back john pielli passball show mtr radio network and we're just going to finish up here with a couple little points that i see out there going on through the wire in major league baseball the san francisco giants despite their depth that they have in their rotation with of course matt kane and vogel song and barry zito and bum gardner and the whole thing are actually pursuing another starting pitcher which i find very interesting they're interested in miami's ricky nolasco uh houston's bud norris perhaps the giants go out there and make a trade which in my opinion would be a surprise as they don't need a top-end guy, but I think they could feel like they could use the depth within their rotation. Another interesting thing going on, the Seattle Mariners have called up catcher Mike Zunino, who was the number three overall pick in a draft last year. The MLB draft, the whole thing. And it looks like they are relying on this guy to be the catcher of the future for them, not Jesus Montero. And a lot of Yankee fans are wondering, saying, hey, the Michael Pineda trade for Jesus Montero was so bad. Michael Pineda hasn't pitched for them. But Pineda will be up with the Yankees this year, making an impact. And I bet you by the end of this season, the Yankee fans would be happy to have traded Jesus Montero for Michael Pineda. But Mike Zanino looks like he's he's the real deal. He's going to be a guy that's going to get pretty much the rest of the season to play behind the plate for the Seattle. Mariners I think that's going to be great for them and this is a situation where I think I think uh, the Mariners have their catcher for the future um, go moving on of course last week we covered the MLB draft from Hooters over in Princeton New Jersey did a great job there um, I, I gotta say I got the number one pick right a lot of people said that uh, Mark Appel would not go number one to the Houston Astros and I thought that he would because he's the best player on the board so I do want to give myself a little credit for that but um, the only the only pick that went out there that I thought was a little bit of a surprise was the Kansas City Royals picking at number eight in the draft, and they ended up taking Hunter Dozier with the uh, seventh overall pick in the draft, a guy that wasn't on anybody's radar, wasn't on my radar. I didn't see him going really until the second round. But what the Royals were able to do with that, and I find it so interesting because we talked about this on the draft show with Chris Alley, was the Royals were able to pay Dozier well below slot value because they took him so high where he wasn't projected. And what they were able to do is get a left-hand pitcher in a supplemental round with a 34th overall pick in Sean Manea, a guy who they could have afforded to pay more than slot value. Manea was a guy that uh, was expected to probably go somewhere in the first round, could have very well been a top 10, top 15 pick. So similarly to what the Astros did in taking shortstop Carlos Correa with the number one overall pick in 2012, they were able to end up signing Lance McCullers Jr., their second pick, for an above slot value after signing Correa for a below slot value. So as you can see, that's the way it works out. But I want to thank everybody for being part of the program. John Pielli, Passball Show, MTR Radio Network. I want to thank Lou Collier. I want to thank Ann Ligori and, of course, Pete Smith. And we'll be with you next week, uh, Saturdays from 10 to 12, right here on the MTR Radio